Lord, we thank you for the opportunity of being here this morning. We are humbled by the fact that you came to this earth, not just to be an example for us, but Lord, to go to the cross and to die. And while you hung on that cross, Lord, you bore the sin, you bore the wrath of God, and you paid for our sin. You were that sacrifice once for all. You were buried in the tomb, and you rose again on the third day. Lord, you have, you have demonstrated by your actions that you are vindicated, that you are powerful, that you truly are God. And today, we praise you for that. And I ask that as we spend time in your word today, you would give us hearts that are tender, that are receptive, that are open to your truth, and that you would simply allow me as your messenger uh, to reflect your truth to, to your people and to those who are listening here this morning, that our hearts would be uh, convicted, that our hearts would be comforted, that our hearts would be confident in the certainty of what it means to believe in the resurrection, to live out of the resurrection. Lord, we need your help as listeners. We need, I need your help, Lord, as a messenger. And we ask, Lord, for you to be glorified in all that is said and done. In your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you're visiting with us this morning, we certainly want to welcome you here to Gateway Bible Church. Uh, typically, we work our way through a book of the Bible, and so when you land on a day like Resurrection Sunday, it's a little bit difficult for me uh, as a pastor to land on a particular passage of Scripture. And uh, this morning, um, I have chosen um, the Bible as my text, which means that we're going to be bouncing around to a number of different passages, and uh, I just want to encourage you to have your hands ready. Don't feel like you have to turn to every place. Um, your handout would be a great guide. Um, so there's a, there's a big picture that we want to see uh, as we are, are, are done this morning, that, that he is risen, but we follow that up with the words, what? He is risen indeed. And that's an affirmation that says, you know, this is true. This is real. This is impactful. It's not just an agreement. It's a celebration. Uh, and it's a celebration that... Uh, looks at the resurrection, sees the resurrection in all its full orb uh, reality, uh, fashioning and shaping us um, and making us what God wants us to do. Uh, and as I preach, as I open up the word this morning, I would just ask that you pray because we all need this. Whether you're uh, someone who's a follower of Christ or whether you're someone here who's visiting who may not uh, really know what Christianity is about or just really struggling with it. Um, there's, there's something powerful and impactful for all of us here this morning. As we begin, though, I'd like for us to turn to the book of Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And I'd like for you to notice verse 32 in that chapter. The Apostle Paul stood at the Areopagus and began to preach the gospel to the men of Athens. And those men of Athens were made up of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers of the day. And Luke, the author of Acts, tells us how the crowd responded when Paul was done. Acts 17, verse 32. Here's what it says. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Now, isn't it interesting that when people heard about the resurrection of the dead, there were two responses. One was the response of, Mocking the other ones, but we'll hear you again. Let me just pull something I found this week as I was preparing. This is kind of an old statistic, but I think it's a, a helpful statistic 
2002, uh, someone did a study of the Church of England. And they found in that study that one-third of the, um, the clergy or the pastors in the Church of England did not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the tomb. Now, friends, if, if you are a Christian, that is shocking information. It doesn't make any sense how anyone can call themselves a pastor, can lead the church to follow Jesus Christ and deny the bodily resurrection. It just doesn't comprehend if you're going to be honest with what Scripture says. Now, isn't it interesting, though, that, that there is a response here? The first response is of mocking. Mocking at the preaching or the teaching of the gospel, friends, is not a new phenomenon. It's been going on for over 2,000 years. It's a, it's a word, this word mock or mockery is a word that has the idea of, of laughter, the kind of laughter of ridicule. So it's laughter and ridicule put together. It's the kind of laughter that is, is written on the face of a coworker or, or, or an acquaintance. When you say, yes, I'm a follower of Christ, and I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection. And if they were sipping the soda when you said that, their mocking ridicule will be expressed by a, a spray of soda on your face. I've, I've interacted with some people, but when you start talking about the gospel, they, they just get this kind of smirk on their face, and it's kind of like, you actually believe that stuff? I mean, you, you, I'm actually talking to someone that actually believes that Jesus Christ not only died on the cross, but rose from the dead. And of course, you continue on. You know, they're thinking, you know, what, you seriously do this? And you're saying, yeah, I, I actually do. And you really don't want to cause any offense, I don't think. The thought is just too funny to them to keep it inside. And they're thinking, they're saying, who really believes all that stuff anyway? But notice what happens next in the story. We continue on reading in Acts 17, verse 32. We'll start there again. Now, when they heard of the, re of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and what? Believed. Among whom were also Dionysius, uh, the uh, and the women named Damaris and others with them. Why, why would people believe in something as radical as the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or to put it another way, what is the evidence that brings people to believe in the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ? You see, one of the, one of the things that happens in our American Christianity is we might talk about the gospel kind of in a watered-down way. You know, God loves you. All right, let me try and push it a little further. You know, well, Jesus died for you. Okay, he died for me. That's nice. Um, but when you start saying he died and he rose again, now you're entering into a whole different world. Because someone can die for you as a sacrifice. Uh, someone, you know, you're standing, the car's coming, and it they knock you out of the way and they die in your place. You're like, I really appreciate that. But the death that Jesus died was far more significant than that. And the resurrection is so incomprehensible. We don't know what category to put it in. If someone comes and says, I believe in the resurrection, what do we do with that? And many times in our American Christian culture, 
We don't include the resurrection as part of what the gospel is. It's often a forgotten part of that gospel. Now turn to the book of Acts in chapter 4. Book of Acts in chapter 4. Here we find the other apostle, Peter and John, standing before the religious council, proclaiming the gospel, having healed a crippled man. And here's what they say. Rulers of the people of elders, if we are uh, being examined today, this is verse 9, concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man, this crippled man, is standing before you well. One of the religious leaders charged them, having heard that, not to, to speak or to teach the gospel. This is how Peter and John respond. Look at verse 19 and 20. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So today, we want to see what the apostles believed about the resurrection and why they believed it. And although we won't be exhausted, um, I will be throwing at you a lot of the kitchen sink. And, and, and I want to encourage you, if you, if you feel like you're getting lost, maybe just kind of step back, follow your, your, your handout. Don't have to turn to every passage of scripture I go to. The bottom line here, friends, is that we want to, and when, we're all, when it's all said and done, we want to see the impact of the fact that the resurrection is not some small, isolated reality that took place in the Gospels. The resurrection is all throughout the Word of God. And the apostles, the disciples, the early followers of Christ believe in the resurrection. So if you're here this morning and you're a child of God, my goal here is that you'll be built up, you'll be equipped with the, the reality and the understanding and the awareness of, of how the resurrection impact um, how we live and our understanding of what the gospel is meant for. You're somewhat skeptical. I, I hope this morning that as we go through God's word and we, 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 we expose certain sections of God's word, that this would be a, a basis of a, of a greater awareness that you would see that the resurrection is not some kind of high in the sky reality. It is a certainty that is born out of what happened in Jesus Christ. This is significant, incredibly significant, that if you do not believe in the resurrection, you really cannot claim to be a follower of Christ. It's so central. So we're covering a, a lot of ground this morning. Now, as I said, the big picture is this. We want to know that he is risen and that he is risen indeed. So let's begin by, by saying it this way then, okay? And by the way, I want you to pull that from that, uh, that passage there in chapter 4, this idea that this is what we speak, what we've seen, what we've heard. Let's begin then with what they heard. What did the apostles, what did the disciples actually hear? Well, they heard the testimony of Christ. And friends, this is really significant. This is important. Luke's account of the resurrection, after the angels appeared to the women who came to the tomb expecting to find the body and to finish the anointing, here's what we find. Luke chapter 24 and verses 5 and following. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men 
said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. What they heard. They remembered his words. The words that Jesus had spoken about why he was going to Jerusalem. This is a theme through at least three of the Gospels. Lay it out very, very clearly. But we're going to focus our time here in Mark's Gospel. I just want to draw your attention now to what Jesus says while he's ministering on this earth to his disciples about what is going to happen. Mark chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. This is what it says. Well, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. He's asking the questions, who do people say that I am? And then he transitions and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says the following, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, friends, this is, this is significant. The rebuke of Peter um, is significant for the resurrection because behind Peter's rebuke is a distorted view of the role of the Messiah. He, along with many of the Jews, were anticipating a Messiah that would come and deliver them out of the bondage of Rome and then establish himself as the king of Jerusalem and get the Romans out of here. And so when, when Peter says, you are the Christ, he had his answer right with this, but he didn't know what the answer meant. Right, there's, there's a lesson for us there, isn't there? <laughs> we can sign on the bottom line that we think that Jesus is God's son, but do we know what that means? We say we agree with the gospel, but do we actually know what that means? We say we believe in the resurrection, but do we know what that means? In Mark chapter 9, just a page over in verse 31 and 32. Again, Jesus is journeying through Galilee with the disciples. We, we find him teaching once again. And it says this, verse 31, for he was teaching the disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. For they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And then if you turn over one more page to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, and verses 33 and 34. Again, Jesus is journeying with his disciples, but this time to Jerusalem. And he reminds them a third time, saying, verse 33, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. After three days, he will rise. Now, we need to get the impact of what Jesus is saying. This is before it all happens. This is in anticipation. Jesus has his face set toward Jerusalem, Luke says. He knows that he has to go to that cross. And when he gets to that place, Jerusalem, these are the things that are going to take place. He's going to be delivered over. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be flogged. He's going to be shamefully treated. He's going to be crucified and killed. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise 
again. This is what Jesus has been saying to his disciples over and over and over again. There's something interesting about what Luke shows us in the very same passage in the parallel account. Luke chapter 18, verse 31 through verse 33. This is kind of something I just want you to hold on to as we continue on. Verse 31 from Luke 18. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man, which is a reference that Jesus used for himself, by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spat upon him. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Friends. We read at the beginning here the account in Luke 24 and verse 8. It says, and then they remembered his words. See, Jesus was, was a little guarded. In fact, he, he, he hid the significance about what he was saying from his disciples. But he taught them and he told them over and over again that he was going to Jerusalem and that he was going to die and that he was going to rise again. That is his testimony. That's what he said would happen. But not only did they hear the words of Jesus, they also saw. There were eyewitness accounts, or eyewitnesses of the events surrounding the resurrection. And friends, this is really where we, we land the plane in John chapter, um, John chapter 20, the passage that we read here. We're looking at John's record now. And as I read this passage, John 20, 1 through 10, I want you to, to notice what they saw. Just, just take in the emphasis here of, of, of what they observed in this whole narrative account. What's repeated by the narrator of the story. Let's begin at verse 1 again. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went in, and, and he saw and believed, for as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So the disciples went back to their homes. Now, there's some really impactful things taking place here. Notice, first of all, what they saw. The first thing they saw was an empty tomb. They saw that Jesus was not in the tomb, that he was buried in it. We might deny that an actual resurrection took place, but we cannot hardly deny that the tomb was empty. It was empty. The empty tomb has been a, a formidable argument for the resurrection throughout the history that unbelievers have 
have invented a number of theories to account for it. The first one, of course, is that the women, being women, went to the wrong place, which hopefully you women say we don't like that idea, okay? And, and honestly, I mean, it's one of those things where you have to say, if you're coming up with this idea, you have to think through what's going on. Not only did Mary and Mary Magdalene go to the wrong tomb, what else happened? When they got Peter and John, now they're also going to the wrong tomb. And you have to remember that Mary and Mary Magdalene were there before in the tomb anointing the body. All right, it, just, it doesn't make any sense, but it is a theory. The next theory is often called the swoon theory. The swoon idea is there to, to, to seem dead but not be dead. We have this kind of this, um, this mode where there's the appearance of death, but there's no actual death. And so the idea is that Jesus didn't actually die, it just appeared that he was dead and that he was buried alive. Well, let's think about the logic of that. There's some difficulties there. Roman guards entrusted with an execution would hardly be fooled in this kind of manner. Something happened during the whole crucifixion scene to make sure that Jesus was dead. What was it? It involved a spear and it involved his body. And the purpose of the spear was not just to say, oh, I wonder whether, you know, I could poke him. The idea was, let's make sure he's dead, okay? Not only that, was there a long time. When we know about crucifixion, it was a grueling thing, right? So you've got to put all those things together. That had they hung on a cross for hours, had a spear thrust into his side, he would simply wake up and roll a stone away that had been sealed and put in place by many others, passing the Roman guard. And he had the energy to even do that the strength of his human body to accomplish those things. Um, this is pretty outlandish. Okay. And then this broke the idea that the body of Christ was stolen. Well, who came up with that idea? Well, the narratives can find out it was religious leadership. They came up with the idea, well, see, the disciples stole the body. So he must not, that's how we're gonna, that's how we're gonna spin it, because we don't know what happened. So say the disciples stole the body. My friends, there's a lot of things that are just uh, difficulties with those various theories. And the purpose this morning is not to get into all of them, but just simply to say there was an empty tomb. And that is a fact that you and I have to make sure that we understand or that we deal with. But not only that, there was an empty tomb, but there was also a not quite empty tomb. Because there were some things in the tomb that are evidence, that are the means of belief. The narrator indicates that as John looked in and saw the linen cloths and the face cloth, that he was compelled to believe. And the custom of that day, when the body was buried, it was wrapped tightly, but not around the neck and not around the face. And while they were wrapping the body, they would anoint the, the, the linens there with oil, and they would wrap it some more and put the spices on and wrap it some more. And the head was covered by a cloth, kind of looked more like a turban, and they would leave the body facing up. Now, if we had been present to watch Jesus rise from the dead, what would we observe? Okay, this is where usually Hollywood has stolen these ideas of what it means to resurrect. Would we see his eyes open and his body sit up? Would we see him struggle to escape from the linen bandages? 
And the answer is, not at all. That wouldn't be a resurrection. That would be a resuscitation. That's what happened, and Jesus would still have a natural human body rather than a spiritual glorified body. That's not what happened. What Scripture reveals for us, what we would see if we were there observing, is that in one moment the body of Christ was there wrapped face up in the tomb, and the very next it had disappeared, leaving the linens collapsed under the weight of the spices and the head covering lying neatly where the head should have been. You see, the evidence in the tomb reveals that what happened there was not someone struggling to get out and tearing up all the different things. It, it's evidence that the body had just disappeared. That Jesus rose supernaturally from the tomb. So the point is that when John and Peter saw that the tomb had not been disturbed, but the body was gone, there were no torn cloths, no stray linen, everything just as it should be if someone would rise from the dead. And if you were the disciples who wanted to steal the body from a sealed tomb surrounded by soldiers, if you finally sneak past the soldiers and manage to unseal the tomb and roll the stone away unnoticed, you probably would take, wouldn't take the time to unwrap the body and head covering and attempt to reconstruct the scene to make it appear like the body had vaporized. That would take a lot of faith to believe. What's the evidence of the empty tomb? They saw an empty tomb. They saw the almost or not quite empty tomb because of the, the remains that were there. But then let's jump forward now to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. And I think this is actually really impactful for us. Jesus, uh, in Matthew 28 and verse 9, we're told Jesus is seen by both Mary and uh, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who took hold of his feet and worshipped him but then when we go to 1 Corinthians 15 the Apostle Paul as we heard already in our service talks about all the different people that saw Jesus post-resurrection I'll begin in verse 1 now I will remind you brothers of the gospel which I preached to you which you received in which you stand by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believe it in vain for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, more of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And his point there is to say, Listen, some of the people that saw him post-resurrection are still alive. If you want to talk to them, that's the idea here. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as one untimely before, he appeared also to me. This, friends, is what they saw. They saw the risen Christ. It wasn't just that they heard. And it wasn't just that they saw but I now want you to understand it's what they read that also was a means by which they were able to believe. The disciples not only heard about the resurrection and were eyewitnesses of the empty tomb, but now they also believed because of what they read as Jews in their very own scripture. But notice how the account of John 20 
finishes in verse 9. I'll pick it up at verse 8. Then the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, friends, that is significant because that means that John believed not with the understanding of the scripture, but based on the facts that were before him of what he saw and what he remembered about what Jesus said. But that's not the only evidence. Another evidence here, another proof, another means by which God's um, chosen disciples here believed is because of what they understood. And although they had the scriptures and read them, they did not understand the scriptures. And friends, let me ask you this. You have a Bible, probably. And probably in your home you have multiple Bibles. And to make it easier for you, you probably have it in different translations or different even languages, depending on where you're from. The question is, do you understand the Bible that you have? One thing to say, I have a Bible. Another thing to say, I'm going to seek to understand the Bible that I have. The Jews, they spent a lot of time memorizing their Bible, studying their Bible together. But they did not understand the scriptures. But listen to how Jesus deals with the two disciples who left Jerusalem and were walking to a place called Emmaus after Jesus had risen from the dead. One of the men, Cleopas, told Jesus, not knowing who he was, about the events of the last few days. Maybe in Luke 24, how Jesus had been crucified. And after three days, his body was gone out of the tomb, and that the angel said that he was alive. And here's how Jesus responds. He says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Suffering, glory, death, resurrection. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And Jesus opened up their eyes, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight, and they went and told the rest of the disciples what had happened and what they had learned. And Jesus appeared to all the disciples, were told, at the end of that chapter, verse 44. Listen as we continue reading this chapter. These are my words that I spoke to you, Jesus said, while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus said, I already told you this was going to happen. I already said it. But now I'm pointing you back to the prophets, the Psalms, the law of Moses. All of it must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Friends, hear this. Not only did they hear the testimony of Jesus, not only did they see the evidence, but then Jesus himself reveals himself to those disciples to then ultimately his followers by showing the significance of who he is from the Old Testament scriptures. Which is that 
Excuse me, which then means that not only is the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, but also the resurrection of Christ something that the Old Testament points to. Now, remember, they didn't have the New Testament at this point in time, right? They just had the Old Testament. They just had what they had. And yet Jesus walks them through these various passages to show them that he must suffer, he must die, he's going to be buried, that he was going to send them to the glory. And so, friends, that's why we also say that it's not only what they heard and what they saw and what they read, but ultimately, friends, it was what they preached. When they were sent out as witnesses, this is what they preached. Now, here's a question for you, and I've already given the answer, but just think about this. Which book of the Bible speaks about the resurrection the most? What do you think the answer would be? Some people would say, oh, it's the Gospels because of the narrative sections that talk about the resurrection. And true, the, 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 the Gospels do talk about the resurrection. 1 Corinthians, because you have 58 verses in chapter 15 that deal with the resurrection. That's a pretty solid section of scripture that's dealing with the resurrection. You might say, well, the book of Romans, because how about Paul just introduces now the, the implication of the resurrection on new life in Christ. And of course, that would be true. But I would venture to say that it is the book of Acts where we find the resurrection on display over and over and over again. And it happens through the preaching of Paul and Peter in When they preach, Jesus died. Well, he was taken. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. And he rose again. It all was for the resurrection. So many of these sermons by Paul and Peter emphasize the resurrection. Let's begin by hearing the words of Peter in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 22. Men of Israel, he says, Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through uh, him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Then in Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, which we've already seen, Peter and John reinforce their gospel preaching, or that their gospel preaching is founded on what we have seen and what we have heard. And you can add in there that what we have read, because that would be true too. So the preaching of the apostles was grounded in the Old Testament, and their use of the Old Testament demonstrated their understanding of what God's Holy Spirit intended with his brief out word. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, that he was raised on the third day according to what? The scriptures. So we have to recognize that this is rooted in the Old Testament. And when the apostles went and preached, and when new believers were taught the truth of, of God's word, they went out and testified and witnessed, and they used the Old Testament to show that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what the scriptures teach. Now, of course, the question is, what scriptures? So we don't have time to address all of them, but we can look at two sermons 
and see how both Peter and Paul use the Old Testament to argue and explain the resurrection. So let's turn to the first, the first one that I would like to use for our illustrative purposes this morning. And that would be Peter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 25 and following. And we started there, so let's continue on. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, about the Messiah Christ, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also was well in hope. For you will not uh, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy one see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is Peter preaching now. And, and using David as a reference. And he is referencing a passage from Psalm 16. I'm going to read it. It's almost identical. David wrote this song. He's saying, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or your Holy One See corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So these verses, friends, might not say are the clearest and most straightforward reference to the resurrection of the Old Testament. But they require some, some processing. That's what Peter, what Peter does as he continues on his sermon here. See, up to Peter's day, the words of Psalm 16 were considered enigmatic, really just hard to understand. What are they actually talking about? What, are they, what do they mean? How could David say that God would not allow his body to suffer decay when, in fact, David's body had decayed? And his corpse did undergo corruption after his death. What was David speaking about when he said, well, you will not abandon my, my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see decay? The people didn't know how to take this. They, they didn't understand how to, how to process them. They, they, they were just kind of there. They believed what they had said, but they didn't quite comprehend what they meant. So Peter offered an explanation for the passage by pointing out the obvious, that David was dead, buried, and decayed. The tomb of David was in Jerusalem at that very day, and everyone present knew that. So nobody could argue that these words of David were ever true of David. He had died, he had been buried, and he had rotted. So let's look down at verse 29. This is where he, where he argues that, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Another question is, so why did David write these words? Here it goes on. Being therefore a prophet, about David, and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. See, Paul, or so Peter here, goes to Psalm 16 and argues from Psalm 16 that what happened and what David was talking about there was prophetic and looking forward to the greater David who 
Jesus Christ, who ultimately would suffer but would not allow his body to see corruption. He would not abandon his soul to Sheol. It knew that the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant hinged upon the resurrection of Christ. Now, that's Peter. I'll say about Paul. Paul in Acts chapter 13. Paul in Acts chapter 13. This passage, as I read it, you'll notice that there are actually three Old Testament passages that he uses here to argue his case. And he's preaching, and he's preaching in a, in a context where he is witnessing the gospel. This is, this is not a, a, a warm crowd, right? This is a hostile crowd. He's arguing with Jews from their scriptures. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it was written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he says also in another song, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was slain with his fathers and saw corruption. But he, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. Now, let's just parse this out a little bit. Psalm 2, 7, you are my son. Today I have begotten Psalm 2 is speaking of God's son, who is also David's son, the Lord's anointed. He will be installed upon Zion, God's holy hill. He will receive the nations as an inheritance. He will break the nations with a rod of iron when he sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem. These are all future realities that require the Messiah to rise from the dead. Isaiah 55, verse 3, where it says, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. What is the blessing of David? We're going to find out about that in a few weeks because it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going through the book of 2 Samuel right now as a church. But in that section, this is David's, or God's covenant with David. And here's what it says in verses 14 through 16. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure uh, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That is the blessing of David. That is the, the covenant that God made with David. So specifically, this is the promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on his throne and that the kingdom and throne would endure forever. You can write down Psalm 89. It really kind of rings true about this idea of forever. But how could this happen? How could one of David's sons, the Messiah, the anointed one, rule forever and ever? How could he do so after being crucified and laying in a tomb? Of course, the answer is simple. God raised him from the dead, and he is never to return to decay. And that's why he pulls in Psalm 16, verse 10, which we've already looked at, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. So, in other words, there may have been death, but God was not 
was not willing to allow his son to see corruption, which means that there had to be a glorification. He would raise him. He would raise him from that place. So they heard, they saw, they understood, and they preached. And friends, this is the preaching. This is the basis of the preaching. Paul and, and, and Peter went around various places taking the truth of the gospel, and the resurrection was central in what they were preaching. Certainly they preached the cross. Certainly they preached the, they preached the fact that God has, has ordained and structured the affairs of man in such a way to bring about his gospel and to bring about the redemption of mankind through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. But they didn't leave off the resurrection. They continued on, and they said it is the resurrection that proves this to be true. And this is all that was shown for us in the Old Testament. But it wasn't just how they heard and saw, and how they read, and how they preached, friends. It is evidence of how they lived. And this is where it begins now to start taking root for us, because how they live is how we are called to live. How we live as followers of Christ is is how they ended up living as followers of Christ. This is talking about the new life of the believer. Romans 8 and verse 11. Just one place where we can begin thinking about that. If the Spirit, um, if the Spirit of God, uh, if the Spirit of Christ raised him from, it's written down one here in my notes here. Someone have the handy from Romans 8 11? The spirit of him, okay, uh, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you. He who Christ, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Forgive me, I don't know how that happens in three flesh probably. Maybe they're taking the resurrection out of the Bible or the computer or something like that. See, the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit who ultimately raises us. When we are regenerated, we are regenerated by the same power that, that brought the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look, let's think about this here. How do you live? First of all, it was the resurrection life. The resurrection life. It is the resurrection that is the fuel and the application of the gospel in every believer's life. You say, well, how am I supposed to live? Well, just pull up your socks higher. Just try harder. Work harder. There are people, friends, there are people going to church today thinking that by their very presence in church that somehow they are going to merit some appreciation by God to say, oh, well, that's nice. I'm glad you came to church today. That's really good. I'm really impressed with that. Maybe I'll like you more. Friends, we don't live our lives with this bondage of trying to somehow measure up so God can think that we're good. Because we're not. What's happened to those who are followers of Christ is that we have been regenerated. We have been given new life. And we live out of that life. That's why when we have a baptism, what happens? I bury someone, someone in baptism by saying, Buried in the likeness of Jesus' death. What do I say when I pull him up? I say, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Because it's a picture of being dead and becoming alive. 
There's a resurrection power that changes people's lives. It is a spiritual resurrection that is based on the true bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And friends, that is the, the life. That is the power that fuels us. It is the resurrection that brings life into the soul of a Christian. It's the power that causes us to be born again. It's the same power that gives us strength to live. It is the power that put Jesus on the cross and bore the wrath of God. It is the same power that holds us in place as God's children. And here's just a few passages just to reinforce that. John 20, verses 30 and 31. This is in John's gospel. This is the, this is the, the driving theme behind his book. And so this is what he says he's driving at in his gospel. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, in other words, what I've recorded for you in this gospel, uh, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But it doesn't stop there, does it? What does it say? It says, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so the assumption there is that if you don't believe, you don't have what? You don't have life. And here's, here's the thing, guys. The goal is to believe. So I believe. Well, belief is the means John wanted to take people to the place of being blind, of being dead, and being alive, and seeing. And it's the resurrection power that breathes life into those who bow the knee to Christ. Now we have the privilege because not only can we hear what Jesus says, we can read about the eyewitness accounts that are recorded in the Gospels, as well as the book of Acts, as well as some of the, I would say the statements that are later done um, in, the, in the epistles about the, effect, the affairs of the church. We have all that. So we have the, the direction of the Old Testament is there. It's explained in parts of the New Testament. We can also listen to the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts. But all that, friends, is driving us to a place that we're left with this, this question. Are we going to believe Here's all this evidence. Here's all this proof. I'm showing you what the gospel is about, John is saying. That's what Matthew's saying. That's what Mark is saying. That's what Luke is saying. And I've given you all this to look at, all this to absorb, all this to embrace. Will you believe? But not only that, will you believe and then have life? How else does John describe that life earlier in his gospel? I've come that you may have life and have life what? That doesn't mean bigger cars and bigger house. But it means a, a, a fuller life, a life that is working its way out with the Lord Jesus Christ, with the gospel, with the power now, of the resurrection that helps me step by step to face the things that are before me. Another passage of scripture is in 1 Corinthians 15 and 58. 1 Corinthians 15 and 58. And here, this is, this is at the end of the great chapter on the resurrection that Paul spends lots of time walking 
the Corinthian church through. I would encourage you to read it. Read it kind of really thinking through what is being said and the arguments going on. But here's how he ends it. Having talked about and proved it and emphasized the resurrection. Here's what he says. Therefore, over us, now that you know the resurrection is true, now that you know the resurrection gives you power to live, now that you know the resurrection is your hope for the future, the therefore, my beloved uh, brothers, you can say and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, well, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In other words, it's the resurrection that fuels your ability to be steadfast, to be immovable, to always be diligently abounding, doing the work of the Lord, laboring for Him. It's the fuel. It's the power behind what He's called us to. Then Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. This is the resurrection life. This is what Paul calls the Colossian church in the world of He says, If then you have been raised with Christ. Get that. Past tense. You have been raised with Christ. In other words, this resurrection that you have with Christ is spiritual in nature. It is what happens to you at the time of your conversion. You are raised to do this of life. So if that is true, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And Christ who is your life appears. And you also will appear with him. Where? Glory. So he's referencing now this spiritual resurrection. But he's also referencing now this future bodily resurrection. This is your glory. So we begin here by saying this is how they live. They live this resurrection life. But they also live out a resurrection hope. Which is what has just been talked about there in, by Paul in Colossians uh, chapter 3 and verse 4. It's because of the resurrection that we have hope of our future resurrection. If you're a child of God, you have been resurrected from your new life in Christ. Again, that's your spiritual resurrection. But we also have the hope and the certainty of our future physical resurrection. Now turn to Romans 8 and verse 28. We often turn to this passage where bad things happen. Passage we either think about or maybe we write down and hand the person who's struggling with some things. Be careful about this verse, but it is a fantastic verse of scripture that gives us confidence. But we're going to read down to verse 30, which often we don't do. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, that's the verse that we usually you know, sign at the end of the card that we're sending for you know, someone who's lost a loved one that kind of thing. Let's continue on. For 
Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified or declared righteous. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. My friends, this is a this is written in past tense about our future hope. You who are God's children, by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, have been justified at one point in time, declared righteous, not because of anything that you have done, but only because of what Jesus Christ has done by going to a cross, hanging there, and not just dying, but the, the part of his death that we need to see, that a movie can't portray, that only can be really understood through the pages of God's word, or someone proclaiming the truth, is that he bore the wrath of God that should have been directed at you because of your sin. That's what we experience. And by virtue of his sacrifice and bearing that sin, and bearing the punishment for that sin, you and I are justified, we are declared right with God. That is a one-time event. And it's an unchangeable event. But after that event, we have the promise now of also being glorified. Which means we have the future hope of a resurrection. It is this resurrection that Paul has in mind as his goal in ministry. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. This is how Paul says it. He says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. Those would be those who ultimately embrace Christ as their Lord. That they also may attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now friends, that glory is not just the prospect of heaven. That glory means that you are going to get there. And that glory means that you are going to get there by virtue of your body being resurrected. This is the promise. This is the future of our resurrection. My friends, listen. When we say that we believe in the resurrection, we gather for church on a day that is called Easter that we prefer to call Resurrection Sunday. There are many who gather for all sorts of different reasons. But we gather here at Gateway to celebrate the fact that what Jesus Christ did on the cross and what Jesus Christ did by rising from the tomb has eternal implications and has salvific implications. You say, well, I believe that God exists. The Bible says the devils believe. They tremble. It's not sufficient to say, well, I believe in God. The Bible says we must put our faith and trust in Him as our Lord and Savior. We must be regenerated. That is what he does when we bow the knee to him and say, God, forgive me for my sin. 
And I see that you went to a cross as the Lamb of God, and you hung there in my place, and you died and bore the wrath of God for my sin. And through that, my sins are forgiven. I embrace you, Lord, as being my substitute, as being my sacrifice. And when we embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, He breathes into us new life. Friends, if you are a child of God, the reason you are compelled to do things is because of this new life that is in you, the Holy Spirit in you, speaking to you, challenging you. So if you're a believer today, you're feeling a little, a little tug or a little squeeze because of the resurrection. Maybe it's something you've neglected. Maybe it's something that you haven't realized is important in your life to meditate on. That squeeze is the Holy Spirit saying, listen, I want to reinvigorate your walk with God. See that your ability to live is not in your own strength. Your ability to live comes from the strength that only is found in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, and you have a tendency to have a little bit of a, a ridicule, kind of a sarcastic idea of what Christianity is about. Okay, you know, tolerate that they're nice people, or you know, they're strange people. Or, I trust that what you looked at this morning is just simply evidence for you to say there's something more going on here. More that I, I didn't understand. More that, that I, I really maybe need to, to study harder. This is not just some isolated thing. This is throughout the Word of God. This is what the Gospel is. Jesus Christ died for us. That through Him we might be reconciled to God. Through Him our life will be changed radically to the hope of resurrection, resurrection life that fuels us now to live our lives according to you. Lord, I have so lot this morning. And I just ask, Lord, for my efforts this morning that your followers would be strengthened and encouraged and challenged about the centrality of the resurrection. But Lord, not just in theory, but it would flesh out in practice. That we begin to see the, the application sections of your word as being founded on what you have done, not only on the cross, but through your resurrection. That through your resurrection, Lord, you were vindicated of any guilt. And Lord, that through our resurrection. We have been vindicated by the fact that you have died in our heart. Lord, help us. Truly comprehend the resurrection. And having comprehended it, to begin to learn to live out of it. Let it fuel us, let it strengthen us, let it mold us, let it shape us. Also, Paul says, I want to know him. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to know the power of his resurrection. We want to live a life that's fueled by what you have given us. Help us hunger for you. And to be able to face every day, every struggle, every trial, every difficulty, with the confidence. Assurance, Lord, 
are God. And you can accomplish great things if it is your will. And that we can tackle our sin, we can face the struggle, we can endure this trial. Not in our own strength, but Lord, with the strength that you provide because you are the God of power who raised his son Jesus Christ from the dead, who regenerates us gives us the promise of the future.